0: And they kept telling me not to resist. Like that was, I mean, what else can you tell somebody? There is nothing else to tell somebody other than stop resisting. And they're telling me in a very gentle way. Um, But I was annoyed. I was like, What do you mean? What do you mean? Yes. Like, how do I stop resisting? I don't know how to stop resisting. What am I? So I thought that I was resisting the pain. Mm. So I would lay there in ceremony and try and like breathe and like, okay, allow the pain, allow the pain, allow the pain. Well, no, I had to allow the anger. Mm. And that's what I wasn't allowing. And I had no idea. I had no idea.
1: of healing our trauma can be daunting, nonlinear, and complex. It is a path that conjures within us courage and resilience. Our guest today was generous enough to share with us her personal healing journey, a story that is full of ups and downs, but most importantly, it is full of wisdom.
2: Welcome back to the soul space podcast we're your host adrian Ethal. on this episode we have the honor of sharing an inspiring story of healing and deep transformation from an early age laura lockhart has been struggling with mental health problems that included trauma depression panic attacks and multiple suicide attempts laura was diagnosed with so many disorders that many psychiatrists refused to take her on as a patient when she thought she had exhausted all of her options Laura met Dr. Gabor Mate, a world-renowned author and trauma specialist. Dr. Mate believes that the mind and body cannot be separated, and that disease is often an expression of deeper, unresolved emotional stress. In 2014, Laura attended an ayahuasca retreat with Dr. Mate, and for the first time in her life, she was able to begin working with the deeper issues beneath her suffering. We hope you enjoy her story. It is our pleasure to bring you Laura Lockhart.
1: Welcome, Laura, to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, Laura, you know, I just, I'm very interested in transformative experiences and what that means in our lives. Um, Maybe we can start with that. Like... What was a transformative experience in your in your life?
0: Okay, so a transformative experience in my life um, that would have to be my uh, journey with ayahuasca. Um, so I had been um, severely depressed and um, panic attacks, and a whole gamut of diagnoses from different psychiatrists. Um, doctor after doctor couldn't get the help that I needed treatment program after treatment program. And I remained this emotionally dysregulated, anxious, depressed person that I, the medical community was telling me that there was no hope. My doctor was like, I don't know who else to send you to anymore. Um, I'd had psychiatrists say to me that I was so multifaceted that people wouldn't want to work with me. Um, I'd been told that I was going to be on medication for the rest of my life. So to treat it like I would if I was diabetic and just accept that this is the way it was. Um, and then I found Dr. Gabor Mate, um, through a Beyond Addictions Kundalini Yoga program. Um, and I attended his seminar, and he spoke about ayahuasca. And though I had heard about it before, it had gone in one ear and right out the other. It didn't resonate with me at all. And then when Gabor spoke about it, it really resonated with me, and there was a, a knowing that I had to do this. And um, because there was about 300 people at this seminar getting up to, him was impossible. I would have had to stand there for well over an hour, probably. So I chose to go home and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I just opted to send him an email. Either he would get back to me or it would get lost in the millions of emails that he receives. And he responded to me later that night and just invited me to come back and talk to him. And so I did, and then about nine months later, I was at his retreat, and um, that was five years ago now, and I have not been on medication since, and although I still experience depression and anxiety, in no way, shape, or form is it anywhere near what it was.
2: I'm curious, what what was in the email that you feel like really resonated with Gabor to respond to?
0: Um, it probably wasn't the email. What had happened was during his seminar, it was his addiction seminar, so his beyond or his in the realm of hungry ghost seminar. And I, ro- I raised my hand and I told him, I said, I'm addicted to trying to kill myself, which was true because that was the way that I had learned to cope with my pain started when I was about 14 um, and there had been multiple attempts throughout my life and at the time I was meeting Gabor I was 38 so we were in my in double digits by that point in time Um, and he he basically he was very gentle with me and he in like asked if he could touch me and he's like what's this feel like and he just touched me very very lightly It's like, that's hot. Like it feels, he said, yes, you're a highly sensitive person and things impact you on a very deep level. And just that his invitation to me, if I was willing to accept it, was to learn to suffer. So in other words, learn to feel my pain and learn to be with it as opposed to trying to escape it, which is what I was trying to do. Um, So I think it was that conversation that resonated with him. And then when I emailed him, I said, I don't know if you're going to remember me. Who wouldn't remember that? But okay. <laughs> mm. um, and I just basically said that you had spoken about ayahuasca, but you spoke about it in regards to addiction. And I didn't consider myself somebody with a formal addiction because I don't do drugs, don't do, I mean, I'll have a beer, but I'm not a drinker. Um, so I didn't know if it was appropriate for me or if it was strictly for addiction And um, I just let him know that, you know, I had done so much in the medical system and that I just didn't feel I was getting anywhere. And he wrote back probably within hours and just said that he'd been thinking about me. So I think that that seed was planted in the seminar.
2: Wow. Oh, yeah, we'd love to go into the ayahuasca experience, but I think maybe if we can
1: backtrack, backtrack bit, and, yeah. and, and
2: hear about your life leading up to the, the invitation, you mm-hmm. know, if you, if you can describe to us a little bit about the background, perhaps growing up and, and what it was like as your um, pre ayahuasca experience.
0: Okay. So growing up, I was the second child, um, six years apart. Two very stressed out parents. My dad was a police officer. My mom was home with the children. Um, so dad's working 12, 14, 16 hour days. Mom's trying to raise a six-year-old and pregnant with me. There's stress in the family. Um, and by the time I come around, I am what they described as an inconsolable infant. Um, I'm, I've, what I've learned is, is that it was because nobody was attuned to me. So they couldn't console me because they couldn't attune to me because they were so stressed out. Um, it's not about bad parenting. Um, it's so like they were not attuned to themselves. Right. So, so then, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so in that, I think what would also happen is, because you have this screaming baby that's heightening your stress and then you leave the baby. Like, I can't do this anymore. And you kind of leave the baby. Um, so there's abandonment for me, lack of attunement, um, unintentional neglect, um, and some physical abuse. So I would get, I would, I was hit. Um, And then because my sister is six years older, she resents me. I'm causing all this problem in the family. So I'm the target of a great deal of resentment. Um, so growing up in that, I could see like the looking back, I can see the misattunement in my parents. By all means, I had, I had a good home. I was well clothed, I was well fed. Um I was never left alone alone, but dad was down doing his artwork, mom was up reading the newspaper, I was alone. Um and it it goes throughout my whole family too. I see it in my whole family. And I think it's intergenerational. So um I have it, I have memories of Um, parents flying into a rage and striking me. Um, and then as I get older, I'm unable, I'm less and less able to cope. Um, it's, I see, I see relational issues starting at a very young age where probably I can probably, the earliest I can trace it to is like six or eight, where I can't wait until it's 10 o'clock in the morning, which is an appropriate time to make a phone call so that I can phone my friend because I'm so desperate for connection and so desperate to just be with somebody. And what does that cause on the other end? She's needy. She's like clingy. um, So people don't like that and they disconnect from me. Uh, It's too much for people. Um, So a lot of relational issues, um, then get into middle school, high school, and it's just a a hothouse of loneliness, depression, anxiety. I wouldn't go to school if I didn't know I didn't have somebody to eat lunch with um, because that loneliness was so deeply painful. Also experienced a lot of stomach upset, a lot of um, intestinal issues, and my parents would take me to doctor after doctor after doctor. Nobody could find anything wrong. Okay, well, finally one doctor says it's stress. I think she's stressed out. It's the 70s. Who wants to believe that their infant's stressed out? We don't have all this information yet. Yes, yes, yes. Um, So um, by the time I get to high school, I'm so paralyzed with anxiety that the, the stomach upset is a daily thing. I'm missing... 35 days in a semester, at one point in time, they had asked me to leave school, um, because what's the point? Um, I didn't end up leaving school. Fortunately for me, I became very physically ill at the school and was vomiting. So they saw that it was real, um, like I wasn't just some lackey. So they didn't end up um, kicking me out of school, but I certainly didn't get the education that I needed. Um, And nobody at the school was attuned to me, like nobody stopped and said, why is this young woman who is clearly very bright and very articulate, not doing, not performing? Why is she missing so much school? Why is she isolated? Because I wasn't a problem maker. I was that quiet child that never caused any trouble. I was very polite, very soft-spoken, well-spoken. So I wasn't the, the problem child. So I got missed. Just, okay, not performing up to her capabilities and passed on to the next one. Um, at that point in time, I didn't know I had mental illness. I didn't even know what mental illness was at the time. Um, there were times where my family physician had tried to put me on medication depression but telling me that it would help my stomach issues um then at 16 so my first my first suicide attempt was at 14 but I didn't know how to do it so I took like 10 Tylenol (laughs) and it had like no effect couldn't figure out why it didn't work but it didn't work um, and then at 16 was the, the, the big one. And, um, my parents rushed me to the hospital. So small town, um, my dad drove me to the hospital. They had to call ahead to make sure the doctor was going to be there. They pumped my stomach, um, and admitted me overnight, but then released me the next day with no follow up, nothing. Wow. Yeah.
2: At at this point, I want to ask, um, because you mentioned your parents were so disattuned to you, was this the first time for them to as a wake up call or were were they sort of, you know, noticing that you weren't well before that?
0: Um, I think they were noticing I wasn't well, but for them it was that I was just being difficult Mm -hmm. So my not getting out of bed for them was just me being stubborn. Me or, being, or asking for attention. Yeah. 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 Me being a problem teenager. So the way they dealt with it was to try and force me out of bed, yell at me, get out of bed, um, force me to go to school. Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't treated as maybe we should look at what this, what's causing this. And nothing
1: in the school, like no counseling, no. Wow, none, none.
2: And so after that, the big one, you you were you were sent back home after one day. What was it like, like coming back, realizing it didn't work, or you know what was going on in your mind at the time?
0: Um, for me, that it was life. Um, what was going on for me was a lot of shame because there were friends that had been there that night. So there was a lot of shame and embarrassment. And um, my dad talked to uh, the one friend that was there for the whole thing and just asked that it be kept confidential. Um, But other than that, nobody spoke to me about it. My friends didn't speak to me about it. I didn't speak to my friends about it. We just went on like nothing had happened. Yeah, it's like the shame was
1: experienced on multiple levels. It's like you're experiencing shame parents are probably experiencing it, your friends as well, and it's like nobody's talking about it, it's like, as you said, it's like misentunement on so many levels.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, life just carried on, as per usual, and um, by the end of my first year of college, that's when I started to realize, realize that there was something wrong. Um, that's when the panic attacks started. So that hyperventilating, the shaking, the crying, the um, the, the cold sweats of a full-blown panic attack to the point where it would last for hours. And I remember going to my mother's, and she she brought me into her bed to, like, stay the night with her. And... At some point in time, she realized that maybe she should take me to the hospital because that's how bad it was. Mm. Um, so she took me to emergency. They put you in a separate room. Um, and the the doctor came in, and he was a very kind man, um, but the first thing he did was prescribe um, a bunch of medication and then sent me to a psychiatric Um, outpatient program the next day. Um, And when I went to that, um, I went alone and I saw a social worker and she did my intake and assessment and then um, she brought in the psychiatrist and he didn't ask me many questions at all. Um, But together they decided that I was bipolar and put me on lithium and a bunch of other medications. And the lithium made me a crazy person. Like I was a walking zombie, but I, was, I had tremors all the time. And every time I went back and I was telling them that, you know, my symptoms are getting worse, they're not getting better, they would just up the medication. I've since had multiple doctors say there's you're not bipolar. There's mm-hmm. like I don't even, I don't have any symptoms of mania. Yeah, I was about to say like
1: it doesn't sound like there was any manic episodes during your childhood or during your struggles. And-
0: uh, no, but I've since seen the the report that they sent my doctor, and in it she writes that um, that my mother reports a year-long manic episode when I was 11. She didn't speak to my mother. I was there alone. Mm. And then she also reported that I reported a year-long manic episode my first year of college. That isn't what I said. What I said was that I felt good about myself my first year of college because I was getting straight A's and it was the first time in my life. And so that was manic? That was, that was <laughs> wow. my mania.
2: Wow. You're too happy. I was too happy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed those A's a little too much. <laughs> you loved yourself a little bit too much. Yeah. <laughs> but I think she also factored in like a shopping addiction. And, um, at the time, I didn't know that euphoria meant manic. I just thought it meant felt good. Mm-hmm. So when she asked me if I ever felt euphoric, I, th- I think that was the, the sticking point, right. right? Is that I said, yes, you know, my first year of college, I felt really good that I was getting straight A's. Yeah, it's in the wording. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. Yeah. So um I hadn't studied psychology yet. I didn't know the right. connection. Um so they just kept upping the medication, upping the medication, and I'm becoming more and more zombified. Um, I'm a mess at work, work's starting to notice. Um, people are pulling me aside and saying, Laura, like something's changed. This is not you. Look at your writing. It's like uh, this isn't you, something's wrong. That was a catalyst to another suicide attempt. but this time I had a bunch of psychiatric medications to use. Mm. Um, and I was rushed to emergency um, where they didn't they didn't pump my stomach. Now they just let you drink the charcoal, which is gross but better. Um, So they admitted me overnight into a psychiatric unit, um, which I fought tooth and nail. Didn't want to be on a psychiatric unit. They take away everything. They take away all your personal goods. Um, You're in with other people. It's just not a comfortable place to be when you're feeling terrible. So... At one point in time, I think I stayed two nights, because um, yeah, because it happened on a weekend, so I had to stay Saturday night and Sunday night, because the psychiatrist wasn't in until Monday. So, on the second night, a nurse pulled me aside on the ward, and she said to me, "I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I don't think you're bipolar." And I don't think you should be on all this medication, especially the high doses dosages that you're on, especially at your age. I was 21. Wow. So how many years since the first diagnosis? That was that was probably like it probably wasn't even a full year since that okay. first diagnosis. Right. So I was still on the lithium yeah, yeah, and yeah. everything. Almost, yeah. Um. I can't even remember what she looks like, mm. but thank goodness she came into my life. So she told me, you're over 18, you can refuse your medication. I don't recommend you refuse at all. I suggest you go with half tonight and then we'll wean you from there. So that's what I did. I immediately found a new psychiatrist who did all the testing. No, I'm not bipolar. However, it was still just more drugs, more drugs, more drugs, more drugs. Um, yeah, so that continued for the next twenty, twenty three years. Wow. Okay. So,
2: yeah. At this point, it sounds like there's awareness and even like a desire to, to get better, like, cause you were seeking help. So that wasn't there early in, in, in your life. Um, what did you try? So in those 20 years, I imagine you must've tried many things, mm-hmm. tried different modalities or techniques. What were some of the stuff that you were trying?
0: Um, there was always a strong urge to get better. I was always jealous. Like I remember being in grade two or grade three and finding out that one of the kids at school saw a therapist and I was immensely jealous But I never had the nerve to ask my parents. Um, I never thought they'd they'd let me for some reason. I don't know why. Um, And so when I finally started seeking help, um, I went the route that I knew. So I went the medical route. I went to my doctor who sent me to a psychiatrist. Um, I tried... So I tried many different, um, I tried CBT, DBT. Um, I, I did two inpatient programs, one through a psychiatric out in Oshawa and then one out in Guelph, um, both inpatient. One was eight weeks and one was 12 weeks where I lived there the entire time, um, several different outpatient programs through the hospital. I tried a suicide program through a day program through a hospital. Um, Yeah, I was seeing a psychotherapist, but probably I hadn't tapped into any of the psychotherapy modalities. Um, Just all that, all the psychiatric stuff, and it wasn't working for me. Um, yeah, but I knew there was something in me that could not accept that this was going to be my life, that I was not meant to be more than what I was at the time, which was a mess. Hmm. And, um, and so then you met Gabor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And
1: what changed?
0: Um, so in order to go to the... The, the retreat, I had to come off all of my medication, um, which he cautioned me about. He did say, now, based on your history of suicide, you really want to have a discussion with your doctor about it um, because you can't do ayahuasca on these meds. So my doctor was very open to it and very supportive. Um, he didn't necessarily believe in ayahuasca. But... Um, but he was more inclined to let me go to a warm country where it would be sunny and where I'd be in therapy circles. Um, so he was very open and he gave me a weaning schedule and I came off my vets
1: And that's amazing because y- you've just been doing the sort of mainstream psychotherapy modalities and the medical um, uh, circles. And so, and then you went from that to right away to ayahuasca.
0: Yeah, it, it was a true calling. Mm-hmm. Like it was like I I had to get there. Financially I didn't know how I was going to do it. Um my mother didn't like the idea. She didn't um a psychedelic in a strange country with a doctor didn't sound reputable to her. Right. My dad um was actually very supportive and said, "What have you got to lose?" And it was actually um, they're divorced now, but the two of them came up with the funds to help me get there. Amazing. Um, so that's how I got there.
2: Could you describe the program a little bit or, or perhaps even your experience flying in? Um, what was that journey like? I mean, it, it must have been that alone. Probably we could dive into an entire episode, I imagine.
0: Right. Yeah. Like your, you know, your inner feelings. and um, So I was, I was scared. I was thinking, what am I doing? Am I a crazy person? So I didn't follow the weaning schedule that my doctor gave me. I decided that, oh, I've missed these medications before many a times, you know, when you couldn't get to the drugstore or whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to wean. And I went cold turkey. Never do that. Mm. So I ended up um, violently ill for many weeks. Um, I landed in the hospital twice for IV because like for IV fluids, because I was so violently ill, they had to put me on um, a drug that they give chemo patients for the nausea. Um, And at the time I'm not putting two and two together because it had been a couple of weeks since I'd come off the medication. So I'm not telling them, Oh, I've come off all this medication I'm just telling them I'm not on any medication. So they're not able, because I'm not giving them the pieces, they're not able to put the pieces together. Um, So having been violently ill for several weeks, the thought of going into the jungle and vomiting was not appealing. (laughs) It's like, no, I've done that. Thank you. Um, And I was going alone with people... I didn't know. I'd never met them. Um, I had only really uh, talked to Gabor twice, so I didn't even know him at the time. Um, I knew. I knew about his um, his episode on the nature of things with Dr. David Suzuki, uh, Jungle Prescription. Yeah. So I had watched that, but. I didn't even delve into the research on ayahuasca or get to know much about it because the more I learned, the more nervous I became. So in order to do it, I had to like not investigate it. I had to just go blind.
2: It's a leap of faith.
0: Leap of faith. Yeah. Um, the journey, (laughs) the journey was chaotic. Um, so I left Toronto, uh, they had to de-ice the plane uh, because of the wind. The plane was late getting to my connection. Um, I, m- I might have missed the, the connecting flight. I'm meeting people in on the connecting flight that are going to the same retreat so that we can travel in the other country together. So at least I don't have to travel in a strange country completely alone. But I might miss my connection. So we land at the exact same time that my connecting flight is supposed to be taking off. And the flight attendant tells me they're not holding the plane. They've already started booking the hotel rooms. So now I'm starting to like, okay, so I connect with one of the women that I'm supposed to meet. She's already on the other plane. She's asking them. Uh, she can't get any information. I get off my plane feeling somewhat defeated and um, somebody turns to me and says, they're holding the flight, run. Wow. So I book it. Wow. And I'm not very fast.
2: <laughs> in slow motion. Slow,
0: <laughs> I slow motion book it. And I'm rounding the corner in the terminal only to learn that I have to get on one of those trains to take you to another terminal. Which, you know, just like, this is not booking it in any way, shape or form. But I'm booking it the second I land my butt in that seat, the plane takes off. Like there is no time. It's like land, take off. So I made my flight. My luggage did not. Wow. So I land in this very tropical country in very humid weather in my jeans and sweatshirt because I've come from Toronto where it's snowing and my luggage hasn't made it. Then we have to take a water taxi to the actual location that we're going in, getting off the water taxi, I fall into the ocean oh. in my jeans and sweatshirt with nothing to change into. Welcome. <laughs> welcome. Welcome <laughs> to your ayahuasca journey. Um, my luggage doesn't come till the next day. It comes the next day. Thank goodness. I didn't have to wait a couple of days, um, but I arrive at this ayahuasca retreat center, which is very remote. Um, I remember walking the dirt path with donkey poop and having to take your shoes off and like crossing a river. And I I just start to cry. I'm like, what am I doing? What have I come for? I want to go home and I want to go home now. Thank goodness the people at the retreat are very kind and very loving souls. And they find me raggedy clothing <laughs> at least to wear so that I can get out of my wet jeans. And uh the woman I actually bunk with um, was able to provide me some clothing so that I could, you know, be comfortable. Um, But at this point in time, I'm thinking, what have I done? Like I've left my comfort, my home, my friends, my family, everything to come here to this strange place that's and it was the most life-changing experience I've had. Amazing, yeah.
2: For people who might not be familiar with the ayahuasca tradition, mm-hmm. um, the plant medicine, uh, could you share a little bit of background uh, from what you understand?
0: Um, so it's a plant medicine that's been used in the Amazon for centuries for healing. Traditionally, the, just the shaman would drink it and then work on the the people, but it's transitioned somehow that now the people and the shaman drink it. Um, I I, I ensured that I was doing it in a very safe space because there are unreputable ayahuasca retreats out there. There are unsafe ayahuasca retreats out there. I made sure that I was going to a very reputable and very safe place to do this it is a psychedelic, um, so you are vulnerable. Um, I did it, the lineage that I worked in um, or that my shaman works in is the shapibo lineage, and ceremony was kept very traditional. Um, the chants aren't just, so it, it's a whole ceremony. It's a six-hour ceremony. It's done with intention. Um, every chant that comes out of their mouth is done for a specific reason to help move the energy, to help in the healing process. It's not a random. These people are highly skilled and know what they're doing. Um, what else can I say? How many? Like how many? Um,
1: times did you drink it or um, I if you want to go into that?
0: So my first retreat, which was highly transformative for me, was three ceremonies. However, the difference between my retreat and a lot of other retreats um, is that I had processing with Dr. Gabor Mate. So there were 25 or 26 participants and every day for hours on end, we would sit in a circle and process. And when one person works, everybody in the circle works. Yeah. That's how powerful the circle is. Um, so there were nights where it had gotten dark and we had to do processing by flashlight because that's how long we had been sitting in the circle. So from right after breakfast until bedtime, we were in that circle with the exception of a few breaks here and there for lunch and dinner. Um, a very regimented diet. Um, you can only eat specific foods um, in respect for the plant. Um, the way that's been described to me is that you wouldn't pour salt and sugar on your garden. So in respect for the plant, you you treat your body with that same respect. Mm-hmm. Um, ceremonies were six hours long, done at night, in the dark. Um, very powerful, very painful, um, some very difficult moments. Sometimes I didn't think I was going to make it through to the other side. Um, and so very grateful when I did and the difference, even after just the three ceremonies, the small things, um, very small things, which are actually big things, um, for example, my dentist had been trying to get me to floss for 40-some years. Well, no, I was 38 at the time, so probably 30-some years. <laughs> and I came back from my ayahuasca journey and I just started flossing every day. Like, why? I don't know. But I did. Mm-hmm. Um, things like I started wearing makeup again um, because I had gone into such a depression where all I did was just wear sweatpants and didn't do my hair. I didn't do anything. I just threw on my sweats and laughed. And I started taking care of myself again. Um, there's still some self care that needs to come into place. I've still still got some difficulty in that area, but uh, immensely different. Um, but like I said, I didn't just do ceremony and come home and go back to life as it was. I did ceremony and came home, and the first thing I did was the landmark forum. Um, which was also very powerful. Um, there are some complications with it and the sales pitch, but the the material itself I found very powerful. Um, and then following that, I went into um, a, th- a, a trauma treatment center. Um, so not a Western medicine, a holistic trauma treatment center. Unfortunately, it no longer exists. But, um, where I was there for four or five sessions a week for quite some time, um, where I had different modalities. So I had psychotherapy, I had massage, I had acupuncture, Um, where it wasn't just like, okay, let's look at your thoughts. Let's look at the energy in your body. Let's look at where you're carrying things. Let's look at where you're holding this trauma. Um,
1: yeah. And and so you were open to trying all these things after ayahuasca. Like it's it truly is a transformation considering that prior to ayahuasca it was just, you know, mainstream, nothing holistic. And now it's like there's this openness.
0: Mm-hmm. Some of the difficulty prior to the ayahuasca journey was that I didn't have the funds to try the holistic modalities, which I was starting to feel drawn to. I didn't quite know that I believed in it yet. Um, but now I'm a firm believer. But, well, you know, that's a good point too, right?
1: That the funds for the, like, the fact that it it is expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, some people are turned away because of the f- not having funds. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, um, I had looked into psychotherapists before, but I simply couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, I also have fibromyalgia, so I had explored... Um, just about everything I could at that point in time in regards to fibromyalgia. And what I was really getting was that I needed massage and I needed acupuncture and I needed things that I just couldn't afford. Which would make sense if it's hip covered, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, <laughs> We could have a whole other episode.
2: <laughs> I wanted to go back. Uh, you mentioned the intensive uh, integration circles, the processing mm-hmm. uh, with Gabor for like entire day. What does that look like? What is processing? And because you had experience of psychotherapy, it'd be nice if you can maybe draw comparisons of the ayahuasca experience and what what, what traditional psychotherapy sessions are like. How are they different?
0: Okay. Um, so when you come out of an ayahuasca ceremony, there because it's a psychedelic, there's a lot of funky things that have happened in the night and it's very easy to get lost in the the visions and the the experience and forget that there is very pertinent messages in those visions um especially when they're negative and you know mm-hmm. they take you back to the yeah.
1: specific experiences in childhood or whatever
0: yeah so um what that looked like was often Gabor interrupting us mm. and stopping the story um, and bringing us back to our bodies and bringing us back to the emotion. Okay, so what was the emotion when you were seeing that? What were you experiencing in that time? And essentially bringing us back to the emotion that that whole experience was inviting us to Feel which would have been repressed at the time of the trauma. So it may have looked like somebody re-experiencing their trauma in the ceremony, or it may have looked like something completely different that just brought up the same emotional state. But there was a lot of, you know, anger and fear and shame that people were given a safe place to go into and feel, the things that they'd repressed in their bodies, so he so he was engaged during the ceremony as well, like or j- this is
1: after the ceremony this is
0: went? after the ceremony, yeah, so um after ceremony, we yeah. all go to bed, it's like three four in the morning, um, and then we wake up the next day, and that's when we do the processing, the processing right? so each person speaks, so all twenty five or twenty six of us speak to our experience the night before just speaking about the ceremony itself because there are two different perspectives
1: like some people see it as so this is the contents of my psyche that are amplified during the ceremony or some people see it as this is the medicine you know teaching us and and um, giving me stuff that I need at that moment Uh, and maybe it's combination of both Um, I don't know but it's just
0: something that You know, I was thinking about...
2: What do you think it is in terms of your experience?
0: In terms of my experience, I would say it's both. So it would show me things that my psyche was doing. Um, So I would often get stuck in, and it was excruciatingly painful, and this is my life, but where I would have the same three sentences repeat over over and over and over and over and over and over. And it was intense, and it was rapid, and I couldn't stop it. That's my rumination. Mm. That's my negative self-talk rumination. And it was on full blast. Like it was intense. There were times where I thought I was going crazy. Mm. Um, it also showed me my anger. And unfortunately, at the time I wasn't ready and I, I repressed it within ceremony. So I had this vision that came up and it was like black silhouettes and then flashes of red, like a very violent red. And I had no idea what it meant. Hmm. And then I spent the next six hours in sheer excruciating subhuman-like pain that I had never experienced before. And I was calling for them to get me charcoal because I wanted this medicine out of, your out of body. my system. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately that got um, miscommunicated in the ceremony and they thought I was asking for tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was Gabor the next day that that said that I didn't want to do the work. He said that was you wanting somebody else to do the work for you. Very much my experience in life. Wow, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and it wasn't until my seventh ceremony that that lesson came back to me and I got, I very much got that I was resisting my anger and that's why my pain came up. And that the more that I resist feeling what I needed to feel, the more I was going to experience my pain.
1: And and so then your your pain or your anger was strong enough, or your resisting mechanism was strong enough that it was still overriding the me- the medicine basically.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, and they kept telling me not to resist. Like that was. I mean, what else can you tell somebody? There is nothing else to tell somebody other than stop resisting. And they're telling me in a very gentle way, um, but I was annoyed. I was like. What do you mean? What do you mean? Yes. Like, how do I stop resisting? I don't know how to stop resisting. What am I? So I thought that I was resisting the pain. Mm. So I would lay there in ceremony and try and like breathe and like, okay, allow the pain, allow the pain, allow the pain. Well, no, I had to allow the anger. Mm. And that's what I wasn't allowing. And I had no idea. I had no idea.
1: I, I mean, I definitely relate there. Like, you know, when someone tells you, oh, just let go or
0: stop resisting. And like, what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean? And you're like holding holding on tight with your body. Yeah. Yeah. But at no point in time in any of my previous therapy had anybody addressed the fact that I wasn't allowing my anger. I had no idea. It was newfound information to me that, oh, you mean I have to feel this? hmm Yeah. And so then the
1: processing with Gabor helped you deepen that?
0: Yeah. So, understanding? Yeah, so the next morning I had no idea it was anger even. Mm. Um, and when I told him about the vision and that I had no idea what it meant, he's like, that sounds like anger. And I did the classic repression and like denial and <sighs> like dismissive. <laughs> no, I wasn't that angry as a child because, you know, we all had happy childhoods. Mm. Um, And he said, he he may have said bullshit. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember exactly, but basically he said, that's not true. Um, And he said, you can't tell me. He said, how did you feel when your mother was hitting you? And that's when it occurred to me that I had a murderous rage in me. Mm. And that I was suppressing that, not that you go out and murder people. No, absolutely. Yeah. But that yeah. you get in touch with, with that, so that it's not stuck in you anymore.
1: The feeling that you felt as a child, and you were not able to express or
0: feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: This this first experience you had, uh, it sounded like a lot came up, a lot of uh, insights, perhaps experiences. What did you do with all that new stuff uh, coming back from that trip you mentioned you started flossing there were some behavior changes what else could you add in terms of the the experience reentering back to your life
0: Um I really just had to learn to learn to feel what I hadn't been feeling and that took a lot a lot of work Um it sounds so simple and really it is But it's so complicated. Um, I remember laying on the table with my acupuncturist and he was. And I could feel the mechanism happen where it's like I was feeling it, feeling it, feeling. And then I was like, oh, I've just repressed it. I don't have control over that. Mm. But I was doing it. And so bringing that awareness into my into my body not just into my logic, but into my body, was very important. And that took a lot of work and a lot of safety. I needed a lot of safety and and trusting yourself, trusting myself, Mm -hmm. trusting those around me that they might be giving me some difficult information, but they're doing it from a very loving place.
2: How did your, uh, relationship with Gabor continue to evolve after the first ceremony?
0: Um, he really became a mentor. Uh, he doesn't like the word therapist, um, but he became a, a I don't even have the words for it, um. He just became like the catalyst for my seeing what I needed to see, which I wasn't seeing. And it, there were times where he wouldn't talk to me unless I had gone and felt what I was feeling. So he would say, you've asked for help, I will help you. But what I want you to do first is to identify the emotion, sit with it, allow it, have compassion for it, and hold it. And then we'll talk, which was frustrating, but important because my way of not being with emotion was to reach out for help.
1: Hmm. Hmm. How did that look like? Did you have like a specific practice that you were doing or just?
0: Um, I didn't know. I (laughs) I was winging it. Um, They don't tell you how to feel your emotion. They just tell you that you have to feel it go look it up. Yeah, go go look it up. <laughs> Cuz I I do that too. That's why I'm asking I'm like I I how do I feel this? I
1: just google it and try Yeah. <laughs>
0: um yeah, so I didn't know. I was really just winging it. And um what it would look like for me was to to sit quietly and be with whatever was there. Um and in actual fact, I got a lot of training in my therapy on how to do that, which was like Identifying the sensation in the body, allowing the sensation to be there, um, even inviting it to get bigger. Mm. Um, a lot of meditation around, around my pain. So instead of trying to suppress my pain, trying to numb my pain, inviting it, welcoming it and letting it be there and learning that it was, it was actually a lesson that I had been trying to numb for decades.
2: You mentioned landmark forum as one of the things that seemed to kind of immediately, uh, precede mm-hmm. the, the, your experience. Uh, what did you get out of that, um, that training?
0: Um, oh, that I was creating a lot of my own suffering and I was doing it with the, 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 the story in my head, the, the dialogue that was going on in my brain, um, projecting a lot of my own stuff onto people um, making meaning out of things that didn't mean anything, um, and living my life as though what I believed about myself was true, mm-hmm. when in no shape or form was it.
1: Yeah, that it's like static and rigid, that it does not change. That pr- you know, oftentimes we we see ourselves and our personalities as these things
0: that I'm this or I'm that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that in order to in order to excel in life at whatever it was that I wanted to do, that I had to step out of the fear and that I had to act anyways. And that really showed up in a lot of my um, my therapy because, like I said, I couldn't afford this therapy, so I had to find ways to get it. That, And that meant showing up and just trusting the process that I was in the right space and that if it was meant to happen, it was going to happen. And if it didn't, then it wasn't the right, the -hmm. right path for me. Um, It also showed up in school. I, I couldn't afford school. I, I hadn't worked in years. Um, And, but as long as I stayed stuck in the story of I can't afford this, I was never going to do it. So I stayed stuck in that for many years. Um, and then I really, th- that teaching really stuck with me that like, just make it happen. Don't, you may not know how you're going to make it happen, but just make it happen. And so that's what I did is that I applied to the school with no idea of how I was going to pay for it. And I even got the first bill. <laughs> Please deposit this amount of money by such and such a date and still had no idea how I was going to pay for it. But I, I took the risk and I threw my hat over the wall because I had to go get my hat then. And just, um, if, if I wanted it bad enough, it was going to happen and that I would work extra hard to make it happen.
1: And so, okay. So when, when did school come in? You, you did the first retreat and then
0: landmark and then you went again and did another retreat. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So the first retreat, landmark, um, uh, a, a trauma treatment center in Toronto. Right. Um, and then another retreat. And then, um, how was it different then from the first one? How was it different then? Going back to the plants again. <laughs> um, it was it was different in that i was different mm. um the resistance was still there but it wasn't as strong and it wasn't as potent um so i was able to allow a lot more than i had the first time um which meant i got a lot more out of each ceremony mm. um because i was allowed uh, i allowed the medicine to work more than i had prior um, you let go <laughs> I let go in some in some cases, um there were times where um I was in excruciating pain again, um both emotional and physical, and I remember the helper on the retreat telling me, you know, ask the plant to teach you in a gentler way, and I did, and it amplified mm. um so that was the lesson that I needed at that point in time for whatever reason. Um, yeah. So after that second retreat, um, I went to another retreat that wasn't a medicine retreat, um, but was all about like the ego constructs that we live in. And, um, and I spent a month at this retreat um, learning to, let go of the beliefs and projections and things that I put on myself and other people. And then back to Toronto for more therapy. And then, um, so school came about two and a half years on the journey.
2: Yeah. Th- this is training to become a psychotherapist. Yes. What, what inspired you to, to make that decision to, to become a therapist for others?
0: Um, I had always wanted to be, um, I remember probably when I first started looking at universities, that was my goal was that I wanted to become a psychologist, a PhD psychologist and have my own private practice. Um, thank goodness that didn't happen because I wouldn't have known how to help anybody at the time. Um, but because my mental health derailed, I, I was able to get my undergrad, but there was no way I was going to be able to do a master's or a PhD. I mean, I couldn't even function hardly at all. Um, so it was really a dying dream. Um, and then it wasn't until I met um, the psychologist at the trauma treatment center, Jesse Hansen, and he was the one that suggested to me, well, there's other routes, Um how about, have you looked into psychotherapy training? Because that might be more up your alley um, where you have to do your own work in order to learn to become a psychotherapist. And I, and that really appealed to me. But again, I was stuck with the, that construct of I can't afford it. So couldn't make it happen. And it wasn't until about two years later that it finally clicked in that I'm not going to make it happen if I just stay stuck in the story of I can't afford it.
2: Yeah. So, so what, what happened the last minute you said you didn't have the funds and the due date was coming.
0: Yeah. I had an anonymous donor. Um, I, I still don't know who, um, they approached Jesse at the, the trauma treatment center and decided to donate the money, but they did that based on what they were seeing in me, in my growth, wow. oh, that's amazing! So, yeah.
1: it's amazing then what happens when we um, drop the um, stories that are not serving us.
0: Yeah, and when we're on our right path, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. soul path. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, it's 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 such an inspiring story. I I imagine you hear that often when you when you share with others. But I, at the same time, I'm careful not to paint overly, you know, a rosy picture because this is reality, mm-hmm. um, I want to ask you, what are some challenges you still face today on the path of healing?
0: Um, so I still I still struggle with relational difficulties. Um, I still isolate a lot. Um, I still struggle with self-care around food. I still have um, a tendency to binge eat. Uh, and binge eat junk food. Um, uh, Getting my eating under control has been very difficult. Um, I still struggle with my body. um, So I still have a weight issue. Um, I still have difficulty um, getting into my body in movement. Any kind of movement is still very, very difficult and very painful for me. So yeah, it really does like hearing me speak really sounds like I've turned the other page and everything's glowing, but it's not. Um, But it is immensely different than what it was. So I'm no longer trying to kill myself. I'm no longer, um, the thoughts still come up, but I no longer attach to them. Um, So now I know that I don't want to do that. Um, Before I used to think that I really truly wanted to die But now I just, the thought will come up and I just think, no, I don't want to do that. Like I I respect myself now.
1: So it's this, you know, very deep level of Mm self-compassion that you've accessed through healing.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's important then to understand that healing um, is not a rosy path, but it's one worth taking and... Mm -hmm. You know, I'm also touched by your story and it's you know, it requires a lot of courage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And healing isn't linear. Like mm-hmm. as um, as long as I heal, I will still go back into those old patterns every once in a while and expand and contract and then but my contractions get a lot smaller mm-hmm. and my expansions get a lot bigger and I mean I'm able to function.
2: Laura, what's your what's your vision for for your I mean, on on the one hand, for the future of psychotherapy, but but also at a personal level for yourself.
0: Mm -hmm. So my vision for um, psychotherapy is that more of the people start to recognize these alternatives um, and psychedelics, obviously in safe places with proper assistance, um, that we really open up to just new ways of doing old ways of doing things that are becoming new again yeah that is true thank (laughs) you for mentioning that (laughs) um yeah and for myself my vision is to um work with people that are me that are very much like me um yeah people that have tried everything are determined to Get better. Won't stop at anything to get better. Because that was me. I was gonna knock on every door in the city. Um, and I think one of the really important things to understand is,
1: someone listening to this and struggling through the same issues, feel like they're the only ones going through that at that moment. And mm-hmm. it, and it's just knowing that that's not true is
0: helpful too. Yeah. 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 It's not true. Um, there's so many people out there. That, like, yeah. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much, Laura. Uh, okay. th- yeah. What an incredible story. And thank I, you. I also want to mention for people that might be interested in reaching out um, personally, uh, they can they can contact us on the podcast and we can definitely uh, direct them to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there might be some inkling to to reach out to Gabor as well, but he doesn't take clients and he's not doing his retreats anymore. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Laura, for sharing your story with us okay. today. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
1: Surrender. It is like the subtle crack of dawn or sleight of hand and that stolen glimpse. It may also be like water, released from rocks, embedded within layers of earth beneath your feet, distilling forms from the formless ever so slightly. It is like the seamless interaction between the blueness of the sky and the shifting blue sea as you stare off into the horizon in seeming contemplation. How convenient is it when you think that you know what it is that you know until you feel it again? Yes, you feel the crack at the center of your heart. you are then willingly or unwillingly thrust upon the bosom of the unknown. Rest here, rest now, surrender as you may,
2: enjoyed this episode. Next week, we talk to Jorge Ferrer about the evolution of transpersonal psychology. You can find links and show notes at soulspacepodcast.com. Please support us by leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find us on social at soulspacepod, that's soulspacepod. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Until next time.